Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tom Keane joining me in London today. I'm still in New York and joining us around a table in New York City is Yaman Onoran. He is a Bloomberg senior writer and he joins us now on the Bank of America results. What do we see, Yaman? Um, well, you know, we were all looking at uh, tax numbers. That's what everybody's curious about. So the, the, the one-time charge the, that they took, um, $3 billion roughly, um, is in line with what they said before. So that there was no surprise there. We, you know, there was some concern that they could add more stuff because there's, you know, repatriation tax as well as DTAs. Um, so there's no surprise there. Um, I couldn't find the, the number for um, their effective tax rate going forward um, this, for this year, 2018. Uh, most of the banks have given that number uh, reporting so far. Um, I, maybe they will during the call uh, with analysts and, yeah. and, and journalists later. Uh, but I didn't see it quickly when I did a search for tax. So, so we're looking for that number because that's roughly, you know, usually around 20%. You know, effective tax rates for these banks, the biggest banks have been around 30%. Uh, they pay much higher than most other industries um, because they don't have as many deductions. So we're going to look for that number. We, I don't see it yet. Is it going to be 19, 20, 21, around there? Um, you know, their uh, fixed income number is really good. Um, well, I'm looking at the numbers now, Yaman, 1.71 billion dollars. The estimate was 1.65, better than estimates. Right. So, um, you know, it, that's one of the areas. Trading, trading is important for these big big guys, and and um, their you know trading has been has been down um, this year, um, every quarter almost. Um, so, so Bank of America seems to have done better than its rivals in that front. Um, not losing as much, um, you know, trading revenue. Um, fixed income is very important, and and equities, same thing. It's it's uh, um, unchanged from a year ago. That's really uh, that's really good. So they're so they're doing better on that. Um, I was looking at their loans. Loans are growing yeah. still, um, and that's you know that's very important. They they growing loans uh, constantly. It's slowed down. It's not as fast as it used to be, but but it's growing. So they're they're doing it. And, and their net income number yeah. is really good. Tom, the numbers coming through from Bank of America looking pretty solid in line with estimates. Some single name issues. Steinhoff popping up once again. But the tax yeah. impact is something that we're all kind of sort of trying to filter well, through and understand going through in 2018 what okay. it means. To me, it's almost old news now. It's like a kitchen sink quarter and the yeah. earnings come out, folks. And trust me, there's pages and pages and even a grizzled pro like you Yaman Honor and his trouble uh, looking at these things. What's the plan, Yaman, for the first, the second, the third, and the fourth quarter of 2018? What's the strategy they're strategizing when they strategize at these big banks? I mean, I think after the tax reform, they, they have to think about some of the things that, they, that they've been doing um, constantly. Which one of them was they had very strict um, uh, goals for cutting costs. Um, maybe they can relax those some. You know, I, there, a lot of banks have come out with saying, you know, we're going to give uh, one-time uh, increases to our bonuses to our employees, the Bank of America being yeah. one of them. And, you know, so maybe they don't have to cut costs as harshly because oh look they have this wonderful uh, tax bonus uh, which is going to really help the bottom right. line um, you know as I said if you go down from 29% effective rate to 19% effective rate 
that's great. You know, you, you chopped off one third of your or of your tax right. bill, so you can keep that money, yeah. which means you can you don't have to cut costs as harshly. You know, you can well, actually relax a little bit and say, oh, okay, we we you know we can right. actually make more profit. Yaman, thank you for telling me to buy shares at thirteen dollars. Bank of America <laughs> moonshot out of the Fourth of July. I, I thought you were in the last all, all cash leveraged ETF. I Tom. am in the double leveraged all cash fund. Trust me, <laughs> Yaman honoring with us, and he will return for Goldman Sachs uh, drama at seven thirty this morning. Right now, in the global drama of our global economy, Janet Henry with us with HSBC joining us in our London studio for too short a uh, visit. How's investment? We were talking about consumption earlier in that. With the tax legislation in the United States, with the effervescence we're seeing out there every day, do you actually see capital investment nation to nation, Janet? Uh, we do see some improvement in capital investment. I mean, there has been some pickup already in 2017, but it's been a familiar story. It's been energy um, and tech investment. There is a bit more incentive now to invest more, both with the repatriation and with the tax cuts. Uh, but most likely, a lot of the gains from that will, as is often the case, uh, mean the money's returned to shareholders or to M&A. Um, and any improvement yeah. in fixed investment is likely to be relatively modest. Janet Henry, Larry Fink, running to some of the world's biggest CEOs, of course, the boss over at BlackRock and pushing them to invest more in the future. Can the likes of Larry Fink really push these CEOs to do something they haven't done in a material way over the last couple of years? Uh, no, I mean, the biggest determinant of investment spending is expected future demand. Yeah. And I think also the outlook for investment will depend on what happens to labour. Now, you know, we can talk about Phillips curve, but the fact is this has been a very job-rich recovery, arguably because labour has been so cheap. If we see some signs that wage growth is picking up a little bit more, if companies are getting more confident about the outlook for future demand, that's likely to be the bigger driver of future investment spending and hopefully stronger product activity growth, because we've seen such low investment growth, uh, rather than being told to invest more or necessarily given tax incentives, which may, as I say, just go into M&A or, or into higher dividends. So, Janet, you raise a really important point. If the investment prospects for these CEOs are based on future demand, then what does it say about their belief in future demand that they've been choosing to buy back stock and increase dividends and not invest for the future? Uh, well, shareholders haven't necessarily punished them uh, for that, but for not investing um, for the longer term. And there have been a series of uncertainties um, over the last few years, um, politically um, and, you know, in terms of monetary tightening and, and various other factors um, around the world. But I would argue that the still relatively low level of investment growth relative to GDP growth would suggest that they are still just not more confident enough. But growth expectations are being revised mm -hmm. up, which is why we might just see a little bit more. Dovetail your HSBC economics with Steve Major's call where he was brilliant for two years or so on low interest rates. And we've now come up, and Steve has always said we could come up and yield, but dovetail that HSBC reticence away from higher yields. Do you shift that? Are you and Steve on speaking terms? How does that work? Uh, Steve's view is very has very strong foundations in our economic view and has for a very long time. Janet, ignore have... Tom. He's just trying to cause problems at HSBC. <laughs> Don't worry. 
No, it's um, we've very much been in the low inflation camp, and we think a lot of these influences are structural. I think the difficulty with markets is that their mindset is still framed in the views of the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, yeah. Yeah, where it's all about nominal growth um, and inflation. And actually, we had extended periods before that when actually long-term interest rates bore little or no relationship to nominal GDP growth. Uh, we'd only see higher yields if we saw much, much higher increase that, in productivity and potential Very growth. quickly, Janet, that goes to potential GDP and productivity, as you just said. Where's potential GDP in the U.S.? Sub 2%, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think Stunning. it is sub 2%. Just amazing. Janet, uh, never enough time. Thank you so much, Janet Henry. Thank you. Uh, with HSBC uh, today, they're, they're head of global economics. Wonderful to have her in with us. John Farrow in New York. I'm Tom Keen in London. Of course, everybody looking at the 14 different stories coming out of Washington. Any number of ways to uh, tackle the Wednesday events in Washington. John Hudak is at Brookings Institution where he tackles the bigger picture, the longer picture. A really interesting book three or four years ago, Presidential Pork, just about the actual way that money moves around Washington. He's been looking recently at how the two parties are responding into 2018 and 2019. Uh, John, let's look back quickly here. How did the Democrats lose the the traditional Democrat voter in states like Michigan and Wisconsin? Well, I think what a lot of voters in those Rust Belt states saw was an economy over eight years that was recovering, but was largely leaving them behind. Either they were not getting new jobs or they were not getting jobs that were paying as well or was as stable as the ones that they lost during the Great Recession. And that built up some frustration. Um, from some frustration with the Obama administration and with Democrats. And Donald Trump very effectively spoke to those voters and told them essentially the old Bill Clinton line, I feel your pain and I'm going to help you. Yeah. Well, where are those Democrats now? Are they been pushed about? I mean, I mean, to go to the stereotypes, are the progressive East and left coast uh, 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 progressives, ultra liberals, are they going to be in charge Or can there be not a new Democratic Party, but maybe one that looks a little bit like it looked years ago? Well, it's it's an interesting mix, right? So you have, obviously, a Democratic Party that's turning uh, strongly toward progressivism. And with that comes some uh, social issues that can turn off moderate Democrats. But at the same time, uh, these progressive Democrats are also talking about issues like health care, like uh, increasing the minimum wage, uh, like helping uh, retrain workers who have had industries sort of taken out from under them. And those are the types of messages that the, those voters want to hear yeah. ultimately. And if they can convince uh, those voters that they're actually going to do something about it, they can win them yeah. back. I want to go back to your wheelhouse book, Presidential Pork. Does this president believe in pork? Oh, absolutely. Every president believes in pork, but, but this right. president does as well. 
Um, <laughs> this president does as well. So we're seeing this not necessarily uh, in the allocation of funds, although there is some evidence of that, but in terms of uh, how tax policy is uh, playing out uh, with issues such as uh, where to drill offshore in the United States. The president is very sensitive to what swing states want and okay. to what Republican states want. Well, what's your reading on infrastructure? Brookings has done great work over the years on transportation and infrastructure. Is is the infrastructure story of the next 90 days, maybe 180 days, is it going to be the same old, same old bridges to nowhere? Or can we actually get JFK Terminal 1 fixed? Well, I think the president is well positioned to understand that there are a lot of needs in this country, and he does want, um, by all accounts, a pretty comprehensive uh, infrastructure bill. Why can't come on, John? Why can't we get that done? I get this everywhere I travel, even in London. I get this from people in America. Why can't we fix this? I mean, it's totally unacceptable. This is a situation in which there are conservatives in Congress who do not want to spend government funds. Um, They don't think that there is going to be an economic stimulative effect. They didn't think the stimulus had a stimulative effect. Um, And they just don't buy that that type of economics um, works. And the reality is we know it does. And we know regardless of how much money it pumps into the economy, we also have a crumbling infrastructure. So beyond all of the economic arguments, there's just a functional argument that we have here. And I think most Americans are going to be up in arms uh, if something like that doesn't get passed. And frankly, the president should be, too. Is it something about our history? Is it is it a legacy of 200 years or do you, do you date it at a certain point? I mean, Eisenhower built the interstate uh, road system. Yeah, I mean, we obviously have some historical trends in this country that that. Uh, pressure towards less government intrusion, less government spending. But some of our biggest spenders, some of our biggest supporters of infrastructure in American history have been Republicans, like you said, Eisenhower, Nixon, others like that. Um, And so we're just at a a crossroads in our politics right now where helping rebuild airports and roads and bridges is somehow economically bad and politically uh, nuclear. It's, It's a bizarre situation. Yeah. We got to do more on this. John Hudick, love having you on. Thank you so much. The Brookings Institution, really with an interesting remit uh, in the think tanks uh, in uh, Washington. His performance has not flattened. If you go to the Bloomberg and you look at Fancy Pants Mutual Fund Managers, nobody can touch uh, David Harrow for performance over the last 18 months. His international stock performance has been truly upper decile. He joins us now with Harris Associates. David Harrow, can you keep it going? How far into the football game, the Green Bay Packers playoff, Green Bay Packers Super Bowl-bound football game. How far into it are we with international stocks? Um, we're going to have to wait till next year for the Super Bowl. <laughs> but not for international stocks. <laughs> no, I think the good news about international stocks, there are still decent pockets of value. and In particular, if you look at where the European equity markets are trading versus the world, you know, they're somewhere around 13 and a half, 14 times next year's yeah. earnings. Towards, And we're towards it, you know, we're just coming out of the bottom of the earnings cycle. So we have rising earnings at relatively low valuations. 
Um, everywhere else, it's getting tougher. You just really have to be fussy, stock by stock by stock. The U.S., of course, is, is selling at, at a premium to the world. But, you know, I always argue it should trade at some premium to the world because mm-hmm. it earns the U.S. corporate, right. USA earns good returns. Can our listeners buy Europe blind? I brought up Siemens, S-I-E-G-Y is the euro-based stock. Siemens, big engineering, manufacturing, maybe it's what General Electric wants to be. <clears throat> Here's the headline, David Harrow. I got a 3% dividend with minimum dividend growth. Which do I want in Europe? Do I want these guys to give me more dividend growth or do I just take the fat dividend? Well, what we always say about capital allocation is we want the management teams to make the decision in terms of capital allocation that leads to value creation. And if they can't put the money back in their business or make a reasonable acquisition or pay down debt, then they should give it back to the owners. But they could give it back to the owners, whether it be in the form of a dividend or a stock buyback. Depending on the stock valuation uh, is, is really the variable that determines which of those to use. So just paying dividends itself isn't good. For instance, if the company has a 120% payout ratio, that is if they're paying out more than they earn, perhaps they shouldn't be paying such yeah. high dividends. That dividend is unsustainable. So there's so many factors. There's so many factors. Yeah, I mean, I mean. John Farrell, BNP Paribas of Paris, has a 4.1% yield. And the equities performed well as well. I think what strikes me as incredible, um, looking at David Harrow's portfolio, is not just the performance last year, but the minimal exposure you have, David, to the United States. And I want to get fussy with you and talk about some some single-name issues. You've been in Glencore for a long, long time. You stuck with Glencore when the stock was rolling over in a really aggressive way. Now it's delivered. Some people would say that it's still trading at a discount versus a BHP and a Rio. Why do you think that is? And is there still space for this to re-rate? There is still space for Glencore to re-rate. And really, if you look at the situation of Glencore today, you know, very, very low debt levels. Again, don't forget, unlike those other mining companies you mentioned, over a third of Glencore's profitability comes from a very profitable and probably the best commodities trading business in the world. And then if you look at the extraction, the, um, the minerals and metals that Glencore extracts and mines versus BHP, for instance, um, you see copper and nickel and you don't see iron ore. Um, iron ore is something with an extremely yeah. flat cost curve. So if prices go up, supply could expand greatly. This is not something you really want to be exposed to. Right. On the other hand, BHP's had a very, very sour record of capital allocation. Now, they have a new chairman who's quite good, but I mean, they really made some big mistakes, whether it be in Potash or U.S. Energy. We've got to leave it there. David Harrow, too short a visit today. We look forward to a longer conversation with you in London, in New York, or at the Super Bowl when the Packers play next. David Harrow is at the Harris Associates in Chicago. He is a citizen of the nation known as Wisconsin.
is the market really inured or desensitized to anything negative? Let's find out from our next guest. Christina Hooper is Invesco's chief global market strategist, and she joins us here in our 1130 studios. Christina, thank you for being here. So are the markets completely desensitized to negative news? Well, I think they certainly have become desensitized to a certain extent, although every now and then a whiff of reality hits markets and they react. And we saw that yesterday with concerns about a government shutdown. And what about animal spirits? Do you think that there's still a lot of excitement left over tax reform or tax overhaul? And uh, could we see some infrastructure spending if we talk about that? Maybe it will happen and people get excited there, too. There are definitely animal spirits about tax reform still. Um, I'm surprised to see just how excited many companies are, just how generous they've been in terms of giveaways to employees, either increases in in pay, one-time bonuses. And I do believe that the prospect for infrastructure will keep some level of excitement in markets going forward. Christina, we just see with the production, industrial production number is pretty good. Uh, the two-year yield really break out to new levels, almost to 2.04%. Up, up we go with that yield grinding up. But other yields really not participating as much as that center tendency two-year yield. To an equity person like yourself, what does it signal when we see a two-year yield have a life of its own? Well, what it suggests, I mean, usually the two-year hues pretty closely to where we see the Fed funds rate moving and and where monetary policy is going. So um, what we're likely to see is... is, you know, rate hikes in the future, which we knew would happen. It's yeah, likely that we'll new, see three. Are, we're going to make some news here. Are we going to see something January 31st? I mean, you want to surprise as best as you can. That's the time to do it, right? Well, I don't think we'll see something January 31st. We just haven't seen enough data that suggests that um, we're going to see higher inflation um, by the time the FOMC meets. But having said that, we could certainly see the Fed raise rates more than expected in 2018. We have an entirely new Fed. Um, We also have to be prepared as equity investors for the potential for a flattening yield curve and all the implications that that has for the stock market. Do you assume, and this is really interesting, folks, because Christina's with Invesco, an investment house where she's not really trying to game the forecasting game day to day, but part of your discussion there is a presumed good GDP. How good is good? I mean, do we need to get used to 2.4 or 2.6% is good GDP? Or can we actually do a lot better than that as indicated by the two-year yield? We could certainly see 3% GDP. We're in an environment of global growth, and it doesn't look like there will be a slowing of that growth based on where we're standing today. Having said that, though, our greatest risk, I would argue, is central bank tightening and the potential for central banks to tighten more than expected. We've got the ECB starting to taper. So it's not just a Fed story, but I think the Fed is front and center in terms of of risks um, for markets in 2018. What would cause them to tighten more than expected? I think largely it would be based on data that suggests higher inflation than expected. The Fed is certainly concerned about overheating. um, But they're always concerned about overheating. They're always concerned about underheating. They're always concerned about something. What event would take place or what number or economic metric would cause the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates more than people have estimated? 
Well, I think, quite frankly, it's a lot to do with what tax reform might mean for the economy. So we saw some contemplation about the tax reform legislation in the December FOMC minutes. And so certainly there's higher sensitivity to um, what tax reform could do to an economy that's already accelerating. But tax reform in terms of what, bringing the money back overseas or reducing the corporate income tax while the economy is three quarters the consumer? Well, I think what we may see going forward is that companies shouldering more of the growth. We've certainly seen corporate spending that has been fairly anemic since the global financial crisis. Now, CapEx spending has picked up, but we could see a big boost to CapEx spending because the tax law incentivizes it. You don't believe that they'll be spending that on dividends and share buybacks? I think to a certain extent they'll be spending it on dividends, but they're incentivized to be spending it on CapEx. And quite frankly, what we do see, um, what we've seen historically at least by companies is they've been pretty good at timing share buybacks. They don't do it when markets are arguably more expensive, or at least when their stock is arguably more expensive. So I don't think we'll see a lot of of, uh, share buybacks in 2018, um, especially with valuations where they are today. All right, Christina Hooper, Invesco's Chief Global Market Strategist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.